Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm, a form- I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Loving Hope. First, the news. I had a great time this week visiting the monthly meeting of the Detroit chapter of Nation Outside. I'm a steering team member for the statewide organization Nation Outside in Michigan, which is an organization which advocates for formerly incarcerated folks throughout my state. I also wrote an article this week in Medium as a response to the platform of criminal justice reforms that the NFL Players Coalition suggested to President Trump. As for the show, Later this week, I'll finally be doing the interview, which I've teased several times, with the folks from the Oscar-nominated documentary short feature, Knife Skills. Very soon, I will be interviewing Donna Hilton, who is the author of the book, A Little Piece of Light, which has been getting a lot of buzz lately, about her experiences throughout her life and in prison and after prison. It was just released recently, and like I said, it's been getting lots of buzz. Finally, I want to send congratulations out to Rebecca Vallis of the Center for American Progress and to Sharon Dietrich, who is a legal aid lawyer. Rebecca and Sharon, so the story goes, came up with an idea many years ago that they called Clean Slate while they were sharing wine one evening as they were discussing this topic of expungement. Uh, From that humble beginning, the state of Pennsylvania just became the first state in the United States to make that idea that they came up with into law. Congratulations to everyone involved. And for those who don't know, clean slate legislation is an automatic process, which after a certain period of time uses technology to wipe your record clean after you've been uh, incarcerated. So thanks to Rebecca and to Sharon for coming up with the idea and congratulations to everyone involved in Pennsylvania for passing clean slate legislation. Okay. So this week I want to talk a little about my friend JMO X. And yes, I did tell him before uh, uh, I did this that I might be doing this, so he knows. So okay, JMO got out of prison about a year ago. He was convicted at the age of 15 to a sentence of juvenile life without parole, and he did 31 years in prison. Think about that for a second. So anyway, how did someone convicted of life without parole get out? He got out as a result of a Supreme Court decision called Montgomery v. Louisiana, where they allowed people who had been sentenced uh, as juveniles to life without parole to appeal for a new hearing and where they could uh, ask for parole or make the argument for parole. Luckily, in his case, he was successful, and I've had the honor of knowing him for a a while. Just to get a feel for J-Mo, here are some of his words from a Detroit Free Press article written right after he got out. I know for a fact I'm not the same person I was when I was at 15 years old. At 25, I wasn't the same person that I was. I have evolved over these 30 years. I think of how I carry myself and how I've lived my life over the past 30 years in prison. That's the best evidence you can show. If we can't help children become better people, then how can we say we believe in rehabilitation? If you can't take 13, 14, 15-year-old people who have committed serious crimes and take them off the streets and get them the help they need and release them safely, then you can't release anybody safely. Now, I did not know JMO at the age of 15, but in the time I've come to know him, he is always a thoughtful, considerate, and a very kind person. A person who's always present, who's always thinking about others. And during his time in prison, he became a mentor to other juvenile lifers and to other prisoners throughout his stay, which is probably part of the reason why he got out uh, 
as a result of his hearing. So I said this about JMO in a sense. I said that this episode was in a sense about JMO, and it is. But it's also about the 247 other people who are sitting in jail in Michigan right now, probably in prison, uh, a ton of other people, and a ton of other people across the country. And all of these people uh, are people who were sentenced to juvenile life without parole. I was thinking about it this week because the this week the, the Michigan Supreme Court, in a 4-2 to decision, resolved a conflict that had been holding up hearings for those 247 people that I was talking about a second ago so that they couldn't get their hearings like JMO did. So that sounds like a good thing. And like I said, it, it, it's true. There are 247 people like JMO who are still stuck in prison as a result in Michigan of a juvenile life without parole sentence. And just so you know, this isn't just about Michigan. While 20 states ban juvenile life without parole sentences, 30 still allow them. So this isn't just about Michigan. So anyway, when the Supreme Court decision came down, there were a ton of popular press stories, including the New York Times, that concluded that Michigan's Supreme Court only resolved the question of whether juvenile life without parole could be applied by a judge as a sentence after a verdict of guilty, or if these sentences should just be reserved for juries. But what these stories did not report is that the court actually did much, much more than just decide if judges could apply these kind of sentences. They also held that as long as the correct formula was followed, judges would not need to do additional fact-finding in order to apply these sentences, and they held that neither strict scrutiny nor deciding a particular defendant was incapable of rehabilitation were necessary to apply a sentence of juvenile life without parole. As I mentioned before, the whole reason that the Michigan case happened is that there have been several Supreme Court cases holding that mandatory, uh, mandatory sentences of life without parole for juveniles are unconstitutional, that people sentenced before a certain date are entitled to new hearings, and also that concluded that these types of sentences should be extremely rare. This issue of when kids can be sentenced to life without parole was at the core of these recent U.S. Supreme Court cases, and this Michigan decision seems to have gutted the one requirement that the U.S. Supreme Court insisted on, the notion that these sentences should only be applied when a defendant was so corrupt that they were, per that they were permanently incorrigible and incapable of rehabilitation. In other words, they made... The Michigan court in the state of Michigan has made it much easier for the rest of the courts in Michigan to apply and sustain juvenile life without parole sentences. Let me read this from the dissent. In Miller, which is one of the other U.S. Supreme Court cases, the United States Supreme Court held that mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles violated the requirement of individualized sentencing for defendants facing the most serious penalties. The Michigan Supreme Court majority's interpretation, allowing a trial court to impose a sentence of life without parole without making any additional findings, flouts the individualized sentencing and rigorous inquiry requirements of Miller and Montgomery, which were the two Supreme Court cases, U.S. Supreme Court cases that I was talking about before. It does not follow that the court can find nothing beyond the jury's verdict before it can impose a life without parole sentence. Life without parole is an excessive sentence for children whose crimes reflect transient immaturity. The majority's observation that Miller did not impose a specific formal fact-finding requirement is beside the point. 
What matters is that the Eighth, require, the Eighth Amendment requires some additional findings supporting the legal conclusion that a juvenile's offense is unusual enough to, to warrant a life without parole sentence before a court may impose such a sentence. Reading the, state, the statute as the majority does renders meaningless the individualized sentence required by Miller by allowing life without parole effectively to serve as a default sentence as long as the prosecutor files the motion required. If a trial court can simply hold the required hearing, consider the Miller factors, and declare, I find no mitigating or aggravating circumstances, so I sentence the defendant to life without parole, nothing would preclude trial courts from doing so in every case. So, you know, basically what the, at least for the state of Michigan, what this decision did is rubber stamp the ability to continue to apply life without parole sentences, really with the least possible barrier, which was the opposite, in my opinion, of what the Supreme Court was trying to say. This decision was very troubling to me, because not just because I know several people who've gotten paroled or who are on juvenile life without parole sentences currently, but also because this specific at this specific moment in time, where we are all apoplectic about immigrant kids being held in cages, the spin doctors on the right keep mentioning that, well, that's okay because we can find kids all the time as a normal part of our criminal justice system. That's not okay. It is not okay that we treat juveniles that way. It is not okay that we have people like JMO who were put in prison for life at the age of 15. They say this as if it was a point of pride, but it's really a dark truth, something we should be deeply ashamed of as a country. We should be ashamed that parents are separated from children as part of our criminal justice process because there is almost always a better solution than incarceration. There is almost always a diversion program that would result in better outcomes for both parent and child. The exception is obviously whenever a parent is a danger to the child, but in every other instance, research has consistently shown that diversion is better than incarceration. As we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, the long-term research shows that incarceration does not make society safer and longer sentences do not make society safer. We should be ashamed because study after study shows that prisons and jails result in the worst possible outcomes for those incarcerated and also for their kids and families. We should also be ashamed that we incarcerate so many kids, incarcerate them as adults, until they are adults, and we are the only country in the world that sentences kids to life without parole sentences. Yep, that's true. Not North Korea, not Iran, not Russia, not Syria, just the United States of America. So if it's not already obvious that this should not be okay, here are some reasons why you should probably, well, and why I absolutely oppose juvenile life without parole. Juveniles' brains are different than adult brains. And this is from Justice Kagan's majority opinion in the Miller versus Alabama case, which was kind of the first in the string of cases by the U.S. Supreme Court that dealt with this problem. We insist in these rulings that a sentencer have the ability to consider the mitigating qualities of youth. As we observed, youth is more than a chronological fact. It is a time of immaturity responsibility, impetuousness, and recklessness. It is a moment and condition of life when a person may be the most susceptible to influence and to psychological damage. And its signature qualities are all transient. Eddings is, is especially good on this point. There, a 16-year-old shot a police officer point-blank and killed him. 
We invalidated his death sentence because the judge did not consider evidence of his neglectful and violent family background, including his mother's drug abuse and his father's physical abuse and his emotional disturbance. We found that evidence particularly relevant, more so than it would have been in the case of an adult offender. We held, just as chronological age of a minor is itself a relevant mitigating factor of great weight, so must the background and mental and emotional development of a youthful defendant be duly considered in assessing his culpability. In other words, according to even the Supreme Court of the United States, juveniles are the opposite of set in their ways, the opposite of beyond rehabilitation, and the opposite of forever criminal. Lisa Yoon provides some uh, confirmation of this in her 2011 Southern California Interdisciplinary Law Review article. Research clearly establishes that decision-making capabilities between adults and adolescents are markedly different. Adolescents compared to adults are more prone to risk-taking behavior. However, this type of reckless adolescent behavior ceases as adolescents reach adulthood and their brains develop fully. Undoubtedly, adolescents have the remarkable ability to be rehabilitated. Most juvenile offenders on death row experience some kind of childhood trauma. In contrast, the majority of adolescents in the general population experience no childhood trauma. Moreover, the research provides a link between environmental factors and criminal activities. These psychological and neurological studies support the assertion that convicted adolescents can be reformed and rehabilitated. In addition, effective models of juvenile rehabilitation, rehabilitation support the notion that juveniles have the ability to change and rehabilitate. If you remember last week when we were talking to Bruce Western, one of the points that we were discussing, uh, and I thought was a very salient point, is this notion that Violence is a part of most of the people involved in the criminal justice system's life in more than just one way. In other words, you might perpetrate violence, but you are more than likely also the uh, object of violence, and you also probably were a witness to violence. And violence is a sociological factor that surrounds so many people who come into contact with the criminal justice system. In addition, the practice of juvenile life without parole is explicitly banned in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Of course, we're not a signatory because, you know, we don't believe in any of that stuff anymore. But uh, it's still internationally, that's the reason why every other country aside from the United States is opposed to it. Let me also mention here that juvenile life without parole sentences are applied in an incredibly racially disparate manner. This is uh, in the ACLU's report on racial disparities, disparities in sentencing. It is plainly noted that Although blacks constitute only about 13% of the U.S. population as of 2009, blacks constitute 28.3% of all lifers, 56.4% of those serving life without parole, and 56.1% of those who received life without parole for offenses committed as juveniles. And remember, we're talking about a population that's like 12 to 14% of the U.S. population. So that is a huge disparity. And that's only part of the problem, as the, uh, as the newspaper Reentry Times explains. The racism that black and brown people encounter doesn't begin with this justice system. It begins with how they exist in society from the neighborhoods they grow up in, the schools they attend, and the violent incursion that surrounds them, which makes juvenile life without parole sentences even more racially skewed and systemically unfair. 
A 2012 report by the sentencing project titled The Lives of Juvenile Lifers revealed that 32% of these inmates grew up in public housing, 40% had been enrolled in special education classes, fewer than half were attending school at the time of their offense, and 80% of girls reported histories of physical abuse, and 77% of girls reported histories of sexual abuse. And while the root of this story is here in Michigan, this is an issue that of national importance. Well before this, this decision, Rashad Robinson explained the larger impact in a New York Times op-ed. Consider Michigan, where prosecutors are denying parole or shorter sentences for 60% of juvenile lifers, even in cases where parole boards have recommended them. In Oakland County, northwest of Detroit, the share is a whopping 90%. Nearly half of all juvenile lifers are concentrated in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Louisiana. Prosecutors elsewhere have also effectively thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court's ruling. On top of this, many prosecutors are re-sentencing juvenile lifers to de facto life without parole sentences. The district attorney in Orleans Parish in Louisiana defended a reduced sentence for a juvenile lifer to a term that would have left him in leave prison at the age 101. So even when we are getting relief, the way that we write the laws and the way that prosecutors push for the laws to be written, as we've talked about many times before, are in such a way that it becomes de facto juvenile life without parole, which is equally brutal. Obviously, this takes us back to many of our earlier episodes. At the core of this issue is that prosecutors have too much power and that we are bound up in problematic notions of justice being tied directly to the length of incarceration attached to a crime to the notion that a person who has committed a criminal act is forever a criminal, to the notion that violence is a forever feature of people who committed a violent crime, and ultimately to the politics of punitive justice. We also have discussed some particular folks with juvenile life without parole sentences uh, during our lit Stateville debate episode a couple weeks ago. All of these are reasons why we need to end this practice. Uh, in another earlier episode, I talked about bars to balance, which is this idea I had, uh, and it's actually been incorporated into a campaign called Right to Vote by uh, a bunch of different prison organizations. And the idea of bars to balance is that formerly incarcerated people and incarcerated people where possible should always should all vote and vote only for candidates support support real criminal justice reform. Uh, I think this is true as a general rule of thumb that we should all start seeing this as a primary uh, self-interest, that to not vote this way is to vote against our own self-interest. I think that's true in the larger uh, society as well. And I know a lot of people, uh, maybe people listening to this podcast, uh, have some doubts about the uh, the process of voting or about our democratic uh, process itself. But my whole take is that that is it is impossible to make that change unless we start turning out in the numbers necessary to let people know that they can't continue to do these kind of things like for instance one of the people who's most associated with these juvenile life without parole sentences is a prosecutor in michigan named kim worthy you know if everyone that was associated with our movement in her district showed up at her office and let her know that they weren't going to continue to vote for her if she continues to push for juvenile life without parole, then I suspect that her calculus would change uh, or someone else would have a better shot at winning the, 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 the prosecutor's job in that area. Uh, so, you know, it, it seems to me that it's really important that uh, we start moving toward 
solutions where we coalesce as a movement for criminal justice reform as a block of voters in every district, in every state, in every place where we reside, which, you know, if you think about it, there's millions and millions and tens of millions of people who have been incarcerated and people who are uh, uh, are recently released and people who are still incarcerated. And if we all are fighting for each other and we're all putting that interest first so we can't continue to be discriminated against, so people can't get these unjust sentences and things like that, then we actually could make quite a difference. And obviously all of our allies too. Now, I mean, we should do this not just because it's in our self-interest, but we should also do it because to do otherwise is morally wrong. We should do this because there's no good reason to continue this practice. There's no good evidence proving that kids can't be rehabilitated. The argument that kids can be deterred is kind of silly you know, as if they're, you know, reading the paper and they understand that a life without parole sentence and stuff like that could, uh, you know, could exist and that's how they're going to be punished. And even if we assume that that is valid, we know for a fact from research that we've quoted before on this podcast that while the certainty of punishment has a chance of deterring, length of punishment does not. Uh, are we going to hang our hat on retribution? Is that what this is all about? Uh, is it the, is for instance with my friend Jamo is 31 years not enough? I mean I have spent years in prison and I know that one year in prison is incredibly brutal. I could spend hours of this podcast just talking about the terrible things that I saw and just the notion that any moment in prison could be your last moment. Like for instance, when I was in prison for most of the time I was in Michigan what in what in Mich- in what we call in Michigan a level one prison which means that uh, instead of being uh, put in cells, you're put in pole barns. And there are 160 people in each pole barn, and there's really nothing that keeps everybody away from each other, except for that there are two correctional officers in this gigantic building. And if they get you in time, maybe they'll intervene, but usually they don't have time or they don't have the backup. Uh, And so, you know, at all times in prison, even if no one's coming after you, you have this kind of constant level of stress because you know, at any moment, you know, something bad could happen around you. Something could happen to you. Someone could, you know, I mean, it's just it's hard to explain unless you've been there. And just the fact that you can't leave, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about a lot in regards to this internment policy for the kids on the border is that, you know, when you hear all these spin doctors will say something like, oh, well, they're really nice facilities and we provide them with toys and we do all this kind of stuff. You know, Disney World is a really nice place. I used to go there all the time when I was a kid and I went there even as an adult. I loved it every time I went. But if they told me that I had to go and I could never leave, I would hate Disney World. Part of it is just the fact that you're incarcerated. You know, it doesn't matter how nice the cage is, it's still a cage. You know, that doesn't mean that there can't be positive things that come out of the cage. But if you're in prison for that long, you know, with my friend Jamo, like I said, it's 31 years. That's an awful, I mean, like less than half of the population in the United States has even been alive 31 years. I mean, if we can't say that that's enough, if we can't come to the point where we accept that enough is enough, I mean, we've got some real problems with the way we look at mercy and the way we look at justice. What is just about any of this, especially given the research that suggests that young brains don't make the choices the way older brains make? I mean, I'm willing to take responsibility for my crimes because I committed them when I was older. 
but you know at least we should have some mercy and remember that the problem here is this isn't a distinction between letting people go without serving a sentence and uh just getting out willy-nilly this is about people who have served a life sentence not having to serve a life without parole sentence even if we were to say no more juvenile life without parole, all of these people would still be serving a life sentence, which in most places is 20 to 25 years minimum. And that's assuming you get some, some parole help. Uh, so just this whole thing is, is, is to say that there's a justification for this seems beyond uh, the pale. And, you know, as I said, also in episode one of the entire podcast, at the heart of the problem of the criminal of criminal justice and the reason we should demand change at the heart of my call to radically reimagine America's criminal justice system is one indispensable, indisputable. I said indispensable. I meant indisputable truth. And that is racism. As I said way back then, you would have to be willfully blind to walk into a prison or jail in the United States and not immediately see the structural racism. Juvenile life without parole is enforced in racially biased ways, which means for people of color who experience it, it is an unfair sentence. If, for instance, a person like me were a juvenile and I got just life instead of juvenile life without parole at a lesser rate than people who are of color, that means that the justice system is not, you know, that is not being just. Our goal should be to reduce injustice, especially injustice rooted in racially biased systems and structures. I guess I just hope that Michigan and the other 30 states uh, come to their senses soon, or that we make them come to their senses. I think about my recent trip to Washington, D.C. So I took a bus trip to go to the ACLU conference uh, they have an annual, well, they just started to have an annual membership conference and JMO was able to go with me. And at one point I remember just thinking what a great time we were having. And, and we had a blast the entire time. Uh, it was just a wonderful experience. They were incredibly welcoming. There were so many great speakers. It was an incredible experience. Just a great thing. You know, if you like the ACLU, you don't like the ACLU. That's not, the point is it was, it was a really the panels were interesting. The food was good. The people were great. It was just a really good experience. But for JMO, he told me that that was the first time, aside from moving from prison to prison during his 31 years incarcerated uh, across the state of Michigan, that that was the first time in his life he had ever left uh, the city of Detroit. And I just thought about that, and I thought, I've thought a lot since then, especially after this court decision, that if this, if there weren't mercy for people like JMO, that I would have never met JMO, that I would have never had any of those experiences, that I wouldn't have experienced his kindness. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of times I've seen him help other people. Just little things like he sees someone who needs help, he walks, he walks out of his way to bend over and help them. The advice he gives to other people who are struggling. The, the time he spends trying to just be a good member of his community. The, the quiet generosity that he shows every time I see him. I would never have gotten to experience that if there had not been uh, this, this Supreme Court decision. And it makes me very sad that this Michigan Supreme Court decision has made it so it's likely that so many more kids, like new kids who get sentenced that could, you know, maybe they did something terrible, maybe they killed someone. But, you know, at the end of the day, 
they could spend the rest of their life in prison when it's very likely that they could be rehabilitated and that 20 years from now, they could be a person just like JMO. And, you know, I can only hope that that's the case because in, you know, I, I cannot tell you what a, what a great person JMO is and how much I care about this issue. I really hope that uh, if you weren't aware of this issue before, that you'll think about it a little bit more and check into in your state or uh, in neighboring states or in organizations that you work with, what they're doing to help. Uh, And I just, uh, you know, I hope that in Michigan, we'll be able to come up with uh, a political coalition, uh, which is something we're trying to build, like I said, that allows us to have influence on legislators in much the same way that prosecutors do now, and influence on prosecutors in much the same way that tough on crime or victims' rights groups have, because uh, it's not that I only want our interest heard, but I do want our interest heard. And to date, it's so politically popular and easy to just kick you know, to just make everything as harsh as humanly possible. Uh, I mean, I have a hard time believing, if you read this decision, that the Supreme, the Michigan Supreme Court wasn't actively trying to find ways to make it so that the Supreme Court decisions weren't about trying to find uh, a way for juveniles to get out of the Michigan criminal justice system. All right, well, that's it for this week. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash onpiratesatellite. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.